in our second message in our um, series, as you see, Living Like the Church in a Messy World. Uh, and I will be talking about uh, 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 3 this morning, uh, which deal with the, the hard but relevant topic of division. You know, and so I was like, thank you, Mike. Uh, it just never seems to fail, but it's okay. Uh, and to ease your minds a little bit, this isn't math class, so we aren't going to go over long division. Um, but uh, again, Mike asked me to go over these three chapters of 1 Corinthians. And, uh, and what's hard about division, and I think what's sad about division, is that it is so prevalent today. It wouldn't take us long to come up with 10 different areas of division in our country than it is to find it. And so I struggled when writing this message of how deep do I want to, divide, to dive into the division our country is facing. And here's a little thing about that. Ancient Corinth, the city that we're talking about, and modern-day United States actually share a number of things in common. Being a large port city, as Mike talked about last week, uh, Corinth was actually kind of a melting pot of people and ideas. It had a number of cultural norms that were extremely countercultural to what the church would find acceptable. And so as we look through this, Paul is addressing division in the church um, that we see is greatly caused by worldly issues bleeding into the church. And so I think this is something that we see in the States, that we see in modern day today. Modern issues have begun to bleed into the church and can cause division. And so what I want to focus on today is this right here. And it's that in division, do not have to go hand in hand. That disagreements and division do not necessarily have to go hand in hand, and especially within the church. And living as a Christian is already becoming harder and harder in our world, and what we last thing we need to do is divide each other apart. So if you would, you can begin to turn with me to the book of First Corinthians. We'll be starting in, in the first chapter. And so as, as you kind of get to that place, um, let me outline a little bit of what we're jumping into. Uh, Paul has kind of done his, uh, I'm going to these are no, normal parts of letters that we find from Paul. And when, where we're going to start, he's kind of getting into the middle uh, of chewing them out for allowing division in the church. And so he mentions that part of the division is the uh, cause for the division is, uh, is that they are aligning themselves with different influential people in the church. He mentions himself, he mentions Apollos, he mentions Cephas, and in rhetorical form, he also mentions Christ himself. And so where we're going to start reading uh, is where he kind of gets into why this is wrong. And so I'm going to be looking, starting in verse 17 of chapter 1. Verse 17. Here's what it says. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power is God's power and wisdom. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, 
I will frustrate. If you would, will you also skip over? I'm going to be jumping around today a little bit. So if you would jump with me quick to chapter 2. We'll be starting in verse 1. Um, Paul kind of continues a similar thought here as we just read. But there, starting in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says this. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. And so here's kind of the situation that we're dealing with in Corinth right now. Paul is in a place where debate is an art form. We kind of see that today. We see, you know, with our election, we see debates happen and stuff. Um, and in this time, you know, as Mike talked about last week again, it's kind of almost like a professional sport. People cheer on certain people and follow those who are the best and the most eloquent in their speech. And what's happening here in Corinth is that the people's love for this is bleeding into the church. They are aligning themselves with Paul and Apollos and Cephas, not necessarily based on what they're saying, but how they are saying it. It's become more about the performance than the content. And so understand that these preachers are not speaking this way. You know, it's not like Paul is going and saying, hey, I want to speak with eloquence so that you'll follow me. Paul actually says, you know, I came to you trying to speak plainly. But yet the people in Corinth, they're letting personal preference divide each other on how different preachers present the gospel. We can relate to that, can't we? I know I've seen it before. People have preference on preachers. Well, I, I like Francis Chan. I'm not, I don't know. I prefer Kyle Eidelman. No, it's David Platt. Nope, nope. Billy Graham or nothing, right? Right? If we're not careful, we become more focused on being entertained by a preacher than actually hearing what their content is and trying to live it out. Right? Prime example is Mike and I have different styles of preaching. As you can see, I'm not quite as uh, energetic, let's say, as Mike. But the last thing that we would want is for the focusing in on who's the better preacher when what really matters is what we're trying to say. Right? The goal of preaching is uh, the gospel is not to find a new way to make the gospel sound better or to be the one who most eloquently shares it, but the goal is to merely share it and let God do the rest. One of the reasons Paul talks about foolishness in these chapters is because what's foolish is for me or any other preacher to think that our human minds can do anything to make the gospel more appealing or more effective by how we present it. If you want, you can look at chapter 3 quick with me. Uh, starting in verse 6, Paul kind of talks about this a little bit. He says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants it nor the one who waters it is anything, 
but only God who makes the things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. Right? If I preach the gospel and someone comes into a relationship with God after hearing it, it would be arrogant and foolish of me to take credit for their salvation. My job is to plant the seed. And like Paul says, we are all co-workers in God's service. I'm not in competition with Mike to convert the most people, nor is our church in competition with any other church to have the largest congregation. In fact, Paul makes it obvious that a preacher trying to stand on his own ability is doing no favor to the gospel. And so we can, I told you I'd be jumping around. If you want to jump back to chapter 2 again, I'm going to read the, the starting in verse 2 where Paul says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom but on God's power. The gospel is the power of God. And its strength is best displayed not through a person who thinks that they can make it sound better, but through a person who knows their own weaknesses and can let the gospel shine through their failures as a human. And so what we're seeing is Paul is annoyed that the people in Corinth are not only letting the church become divided, but what we see is it's not even over a theological issue. It's not over something, you know, it, you know, in Scripture that they disagree. It's over something as simple as personal preference, that they are allowing the bride of Christ to become divided. And so I think this passage brings up a good question, though. Is there a situation where division is the correct course of action? Is there ever a situation where division is acceptable? This is a hard question. But I think an appropriate illustration to compare it to is that of a marriage. Right? This is probably the most common illustration used in the Bible to represent the relationship between the church and Christ. And the common question in the church when it comes to marriage is the question of, is divorce ever acceptable? And to answer this a little bit, I want to read a section out of Mark, chapter 10, verses 2 through 6. Here in Mark it says, Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Well, what did Moses command you? Jesus replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. God's ideal in creating marriage was for divorce never to exist. That, that was the ideal. When God made Adam and Eve, the ideal was that divorce would never have come into fruition. That there would never come a point in a marriage where it would come to that decision. Unfortunately, we live in a fallen world where at times marriages do not follow the ideal that God designed them to be. And so for the extreme cases, God 
as we see in Scripture, had allowed divorce to happen. But this was not God's heart for marriage, and I think the same can be said for division in the church. God's ideal for the church is, as Paul said there in chapter 1, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. This was the ideal. When, when Peter and these apostles, when they started the church, this was the ideal that was set. But we know that we live in a fallen world, and that was a hard ideal to maintain. So Sammy and I, we, we own a game. We're really into board games, and we have this one that we enjoy. And the, uh, it, what kind of does is tests two people's ability to think on the same wavelength. So it's called Think and Sync, and the game works where you ask two people the same question. And what they have to do is after a count of three, they try to say the same thing. Now, it's, it's harder than it sounds, right? So here's an example of a question, right? Name a red fruit, right? The questions are simple, but there's something about it. I don't know what it is, but when you start hearing that three, two, one count, your mind just sometimes goes blank. And so I know there's, Sammy won't let me live this down, but... Uh, me and my friend uh, Ryan, we were playing this game, and we got the question, name a type of potato, right? Simple. Three, two, one. I, Idahoan is what I said. I couldn't think of a type of potato to save my life. And the only thing that I could think of were the instant mashed potatoes that we have in our home that I love. That's not what my friend Ryan said. <laughs> So we did not actually get a point for that one. But when I was thinking about this game, I was like, you know, this might be a fun way to test and to see how our church is doing and being perfectly of one mind and of one thought. So here's what we're going to do. I have three questions. I'll read a question, and after I count down from three, say the first thing that comes to your mind, and we'll see how well we're doing. So here we go. Here's the first question. Name a Thanksgiving side dish. Three, two, one. See, this is hard. This is hard. <laughs> okay. Question number two. Name something that you store underneath your sink. Three, Two, one. <laughs> oh, you guys got it? Oh, there you go. Good job. That's two that we got the same. Okay, here's the final question. Okay, this is a hard one. Name a brand of coffee. <laughs> Getting ahead of me. That's, that was actually pretty good. That, that was probably our best one yet, though. So that was good. That was good. And the, so the thing with this game, though, is that it's hard at times to get two people to be on the same page, right? To get two people to be on the same page, let alone an entire room of people or an entire group of people across the whole world, right? And so what happens is it doesn't take much historical knowledge of the church to know that unity 
has been hard for us to accomplish. In fact, rarely if ever in history have all Christians been perfectly united in mind and thought. I mean, this is something hard to accomplish in a single church, let alone the church worldwide. The ideal set is that if there would never be a circumstance where division is acceptable, but we know that this isn't a reality. We know that looking at history that this hasn't been the case. And we know that there will probably be times in the future where we have to look at if division is the acceptable course of action. So to help us understand uh, this a little bit better, to help us understand where division might be acceptable, uh, I have a graphic for us that one of my professors used to teach us theology in college. And so this breaks down as a target with three rings. And so the outside ring is labeled conviction. The middle ring is creed. And the very center there, or the bullseye, um, fittingly, is the core. And so let's start with the core. We'll start with the middle. These are the beliefs that, I, that are our identity as Christians. Right? Most churches nowadays, on their website, uh, if you go to a church's website, you can find a section that kind of talks and walks through their basic beliefs. Right? If you're ever in an area and you need to find a church and you're wondering kind of where they stand, you can go to their website usually and they'll have a section. And, and a lot of times these churches use these sections to say, hey, here are our core beliefs. Here are the things that identify us as Christians. Now, we ourselves here at WCC have a, a section on our website like this. And so I wanted to pull something straight from our website. And so this is from our website. You can look it up on our About section. Uh, and this is what we have to say about Jesus, right? Jesus Christ in the flesh was both God and man. He was born of a virgin and lived a sinless life. He was crucified, died as the penalty for our sins, was raised from the dead bodily on the third day. He ascended to the Father. He is the head of the church and intercedes for believers, and he is coming again personally, bodily, and visibly to this earth. Right? We could say, hey, this about Jesus, this is one of our core beliefs. Okay? This is part of our identity, and actually if I if I wanted to, I could put another circle there in the middle of core because a lot of times as Christians, the core of our core, the heart of our heart is Jesus right there. And so the reason for that, right, is he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. And so here's the thing with our core beliefs. These are the ones that we cannot waver on, right? These are the hills worth dying on. If someone asks us what it means to be a Christian, these are the things that we point them to. But this is also where Satan tries to catch us with a little lie. It's a simple one, but it's a powerful one. And here in the core, the lie that Satan tries to catch us with is that it's okay to agree to disagree. As we get into the next rings, the creeds and the convictions, absolutely, we will find times where it's okay to agree to disagree. But here at the core, we can't. We have to be on the same page, and we cannot continue as if it's okay to disagree. 
If someone comes to us and says that they think they are going to get into heaven outside of believing in Jesus, that is not something that we can just move past. And so the core beliefs are the things that we have to stand firm on. These are the things that, you know, when it comes to apologetics, these are the things that we have to be able and willing to defend. Now, as we talk about the next section on creeds, I need to be clear here. Our church does not have any creeds that we recite during worship. Uh, If you don't know what creeds are, they're generally um, things that churches memorize to recite. We don't use creeds. It's part of being a part of the restoration movement. There's a whole history there. I won't get into it. But I just wanted to be clear on that. This is just a way to categorize some beliefs that we hold um, dear, um, but we wouldn't say they're necessarily core. So I'll give you an example of this. Here at WCC, we take communion on a weekly basis. Now, I'm not, saying com- I'm not talking about communion specifically. I'm saying uh, the frequency on which we take communion. From our study of Scripture, this is what we find to be appropriate and valuable, is that we take it on a weekly basis. At other churches, they may serve communion once a month, They may have served communion twice a year, and for some I've seen they have a whole service once a year devoted to communion. This isn't necessarily a core issue, but it is a topic in the Bible that has been shown value. Communion, uh, and, and when it says how long, it shows value, and so this is what we find to be appropriate, but we wouldn't say it's necessarily a core issue. Now, there are a number of other examples that I could walk through, And I won't this morning, and here's why. I spent a lot of time this week talking with Mike about this section on creed, and we talked about a lot of different things that fit into this category, and and here was kind of the decision I came to. There's not a lot of things in the creed category that I can talk about without opening a whole can of worms. (laughs) And so instead of taking, you know, a little bit of time to do something that could backfire on me poorly, for saying something that I didn't have time to flesh out, I was like, you know what? I'm going to give one example, and then if you want, you can talk to Mike next week. (laughs) So, um, but, no, in all seriousness, if you want to talk more about things that fall into the creed category, um, you can definitely talk to me after service. Um, It was just one of those things where it's like, man, I want, if you know, if we talk about this, I want to be able to flesh it out and explain why, and there just wasn't enough time in the morning for that um, during the sermon for the other things I wanted to cover. So I was like, not going to open those cans of worms. Um, But, so our last, the last ring of the target is the one labeled convictions. Now, most of the things that fall into this category are personal preferences. These are the things like what Corinth is dealing with, with their preference in preachers. And so I'm going to give a number of examples of these stories that I have found from other churches outside of ours. Um, And so I actually, I found a website, and it's where uh, some pastors go to just vent a little bit and say, hey, here are some of the things that our church has dealt with. And so, you know, I say these somewhat in a jokingly matter, uh, but at the same time, the churches that had arguments over these things went through real pain and real division. But here are some things that churches have fought over. One church had a large argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. 
you know, thank goodness Josh isn't here. We got beardless now. You know, that might be something we'd have to discuss with him. Um, but no, they, that was a real thing. They had an argument over the appropriate length of their worship pastor's beard. Another one, another church fought over which picture of Jesus to hang in the foyer, which is particularly funny to me because I don't think we really have any picture that quite probably looks like Jesus, but that's okay. Um, I don't think our church will actually have this next argument uh, based off the question I asked previously, um, but there's been multiple churches that have had arguments over what brand of coffee to use. And so, you know, from the, the, that last question, you know, we had, we were pretty on the same page with that. A lot of you guys like Folgers, so that was good. That was good. And this one was my favorite. But apparently another church had a major issue arise on whether or not it was appropriate to serve deviled eggs at meals. Yep. And so if you think the game of Monopoly ruins relationships that is nothing compared to churches who have gone through the war over the color of carpet. I, I, this one I've personally have known churches have gone through that war. Now we've already talked about division when it comes to a difference on core matters. Um, but when it comes to division on things that fall into the creed category, it gets a little bit harder because not only as a church, but as individuals, we might have differing opinions on what belongs in creed and what belongs in core. Um, but for the most part, it's not worth division for things that fall into the creed category. But just as easily as I can say that we cannot compromise on core things, I can say that we cannot cause division on matters in the conviction category. As we talked about earlier, the church is the bride of Christ. And someday we will have to stand before Jesus and we will have to give an account on how we treated his bride. Do we want to have to stand there and let him know we thought it was worth dividing his bride over the brand of coffee that we used? Yep, sorry Jesus, we thought that was worth it. And so as I said in the beginning, it comes down to this. Disagreeance and division do We can be a church and we can be a united church and have different thoughts on different things within the church. As mature, responsible Christians, we are fully capable of being able to maintain unity within the church. And we are here to be an example for the rest of the world to be an example of what unity and love can look like, but what does it look like when we quarrel over something like the color of the carpet? And so besides the things inside of the church that might be causes for division, the preferences that we have, we also have to keep a close eye on the things of this world that it start to creep into our church to trying to divide us. I don't know if you've watched the news as of recently or been on Facebook, but our country is going through a tough time. In fact, I would say that I've never seen our country so divided in my lifetime. I think that'd be a fair statement. You know, I know election years can be a little bit difficult, but 2020 will be a year for the history books. 
And so what this tells me and what I can say without a doubt in my mind is what our country desperately needs right now is a unified church ready to speak truth and love to those who need to hear it. To share the good news of the gospel and spread the hope that we have in our Savior Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if we are on the blue side or the red side. We all share an equal need for grace. So let's not make the division in our country worse by spreading more hate. But as is the mission of our church here, let's be united in trying to help people find and follow Jesus. Will you pray with me? Dear God, I thank you for the ideal that you have set, the ideal for us to strive towards, that we would have a unified church across this world. That this was the plan that you set in place to go out and to reach the lost. Help us do that. Not just here in Whiting, but in all the communities that we have an impact in and in all the different places of the world that we have an impact, that we can be a united front in showing our need for Jesus as our Savior. Help us be able to work out conflicts and know that disagreeing does not have to lead to division, but so that someday we can stand before your Son and we can have given and needed his bride. God, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.